Welcome to The Human Perspective, a podcast with the internationally recognized badass disability rights activist, Judy Human. This episode, Judy chats with Pauline Castris. Pauline is an activist and policy expert working in climate change, disability rights, and global health. She is from France and living in the UK. Pauline has 10 years of experience working with local and national governments, EU institutions, and UN agencies, including organizations such as the British Medical Journal, Leonard Cheshire, and UNICEF UK. Specifically at Leonard Cheshire, Pauline worked on the implementation of the UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities in Developing Countries. In this episode, Pauline discusses the relationship between environmental justice and disability rights. She defines eco-ableism, describes how disabled people are disproportionately impacted by climate change, explains why disability activists should also be environmental activists, and much more. Enjoy this conversation between Judy and Pauline, and check out the description of this episode to find resources to learn more about this important topic. The Human Perspective is produced by me, Kylie Miller, and Judy Human. So let's roll up, lay down, dance around, whatever makes you feel best, and let's meet this episode's guest. Welcome back to The Human Perspective. Today, we're going to be talking with Pauline Castris. And, you know, we've never had any discussions around issues regarding the environment and the environment and its impact in the area of disability. And uh, Pauline is living in London and she'll introduce herself with more information. But we believe that you would be a really good person to not only talk about yourself and the work that you've been doing, but to also talk about why you're doing the work that you're doing. So welcome, Pauline. So very nice to meet you again. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. Thanks so much, Judy, and thanks so much for having me in the program. Pauline, can you talk to us a little bit about who you are? I am many things, but the main thing I would say is I am a policy expert. So I spent over 10 years working in policy with, um, with the UK government, with um, EU institutions, with the UN and many different NGOs. So my area of expertise is really being that kind of researcher behind the scenes who is going to try and understand an issue, bring it to the attention of policymakers and make sure that they do something about it. So it's using evidence, intelligence, and research to influence the daily lives of people. And my areas of expertise have been climate change, global health, and disability rights. And uh, I actually became more interested in the issue of disability and climate because when I worked in climate change, I only heard about disability as a result of climate change and not really as disabled people being empowered to be part of the movement. And later on, when I worked on disability rights and the implementation of the UNCRPD, it became apparent that there were very little conversations about climate change in the disability space. And we're obviously going to talk about this in much more detail. Um, the only entry point was really um, climate disaster preparedness and how every time there was an extreme climate event, we would see articles in the newspapers reporting about disabled people dying in nursing homes or in their homes because of, um, you know, a flood or because of a heat wave. So it became clear to me that after worked in that space for 10 years, it was almost a burning desire to bring those two spaces together, having worked with climate activists and seeing that ableism is quite rampant in that space and having worked with disability activists and seeing that 
climate wasn't high on the list of priorities, I saw I need to join the movement because some people have already done things on the ground, but there is so much more that can be done. Do you define yourself as a disabled person? I do. I do. Um, So I have a disability called L.S. Dunlop syndrome, which affects pretty much everything in my life. Uh, So it started with a lot of pain and fatigue that wasn't really clearly understood. And I actually feel like I'm a health migrant because I moved to London to get some answers because no one could really find what was happening to me. And uh, over the years, I developed mobility issues. So with LS Danlots, uh, you can have problems with your joints, but that's not the only thing. It's hypermobility in, in the whole body. And why did you get involved with environmental issues? So I think I became really interested in the climate justice movement when I became disabled um, 13 years ago, because it was really interesting for me to experience and be labeled as becoming vulnerable. And in the climate conversation, there is always this idea of vulnerability. And at the same time, there is this big conversation about climate resilience. And I was expected constantly to be resilient. So I think there was literally a visceral explanation behind being interested in climate is this idea that the world is becoming a much darker place and everything is changing. At the same time, you're being labeled as vulnerable. So... I wanted to bring together those concepts of vulnerability and resilience and how it's actually because we're marginalized that we are vulnerable and what is climate resilience if it's not inclusive. How do you define eco-ableism as you discuss? It's interesting that you ask about eco-ableism because apart from the whole climate disaster preparedness aspect of me being introduced to climate change in the disability space, I think eco-ableism was really where I saw disability activists being really vocal about climate, and it was often their introduction to the movement. So eco-ableism is the discrimination in favor of non-disabled people in climate conversations. It means that when there is measures and policy action that are taken to either mitigate, so reduce the impact of climate change, so reduce temperature increase, CO2 emissions, or to adapt to the fact that climate is a, is a reality that is going to happen and change everything. Disabled people were completely excluded and forgotten and eventually impacted by the measures that were aimed to fight climate change. So if we look at the plastic straw, it's a really great example because It happened overnight and there there was a lot of PR and a lot of noise, a lot of brainwashing around it. Because if you look at the the data, plastic straw pollution is actually a really, really small proportion of overall single-use plastic, which is in itself a big issue. It's clogging oceans and that needs to be dealt with. But overnight, using a plastic straw became the symbol of not caring about the planet. And I think a lot of disabled people struggle first not being seen as being part of the movement when so many want to and secondly how it restricted our access to communities if you went to a restaurant you would just be told well no you know that's not that's not available so the plastic straw example is also very very telling because the group who led the campaign and they actually acknowledged that it was very symbolic in the end, they just say, yeah, you know, the, the plastic straw became the symbol of a much bigger issue and all the focus was on it. But eventually it was directed towards disabled people and our autonomy. Yeah. And I think, as you're saying, it's a small percentage of 
environmental damage being done by the plastic straws. For me, a much better battle would be getting rid of water in plastic bottles. Yeah, no, definitely. And food packaging, sometimes you've got so many layers of plastic on food. Not saying, you know, like pre-chopped vegetables that might be needed if there is a bit of plastic. But I think the other day we received some pears and there were literally three layers of different kinds of plastic on them. And I just can't see the point of that. That is absolutely ridiculous. So there are other battles, but I think... So many people are bombarded by ideas and things to do about climate and they don't know what to do. And then their minds goes and focuses on one thing. And it's also because climate change is such an anxiety inducing issue that you you want to go to the what can I do about it? But your brain is going to go to that. And it means that unfortunately, sometimes there are shortcuts to things like the plastic straw, which actually harm communities, including ours. So you've mentioned a couple of things. One is one of the values of the work that you've been doing has been linking the disability community into the environmental movement and learning more about it. And likewise, for the environmental movement to really see the value of inclusion of disabled individuals. One of the questions I have around that is how does climate change or do you believe climate change just proportionally impacts disabled people? both people who currently have disabilities and the issue of people acquiring disabilities as a result of uh, global changes? So the short answer would be yes. And just to expand on the two aspects that you outlined, Judy, the first one really, how are we impacted by climate change? I would say there's enough data to show that we are, and I'm going to go into that. But the first thing I wanted to say is how little data there is overall on disability. And we know that a lot of data collection efforts are disintegrated by disability, which means that every time I try to get some really detailed information or data on climate and disability, it's quite hard. So I think it, in the scope of um, what do we know about climate and disability, I would say we know enough to know the impact it has on our community, but there is so much more that needs to be done in terms of data collection efforts. So how are we impacted by climate change? The first thing is that we are four times more likely to die during a natural disaster. And actually, uh, one in five disabled people would now struggle to evacuate safely during, you know, a flood or, you know, a hurricane. And that's data from the um, UN um, DDD, so Disaster uh, Reduction Risk. So they've assembled some uh, data. And they've also found that only 17% of disabled people know about warning systems and who to call and what to do in the event of an emergency. And, you know, if we look at Hurricane uh, Katrina, uh, there was the case of someone called Benelda Caixeta who died uh, and she tried to call repeatedly emergency services. And she's not the only person who died, uh, the only disabled person who died during Hurricane Katrina. I think it's estimated that 200 people in nursing homes, people who are disabled, died. And yes, so the the first thing is really about us dying, I would say, to to put it plainly. How do we cope during an emergency, whether we live on our on our own or whether we are part of a community. And it seems like in both cases, there are issues in terms of evacuation. And I think the worst thing about Benilda Kaiseta's death was the obituary and the reporting of her death, which was labeled as some kind of tragic death. And I remember the obituary said she was graceful to the end, drowning next to her wheelchair. 
And that just stayed with me, those, well, th those words. You know, she had a hard life, she had a hard death. And that was literally the line. That's what happened with, you know, a lot of climate events. And that's what happened with COVID as well. It's just this idea that we are just tragic deaths. We're just expected losses. And there's all this embellishment around our deaths. So that's the first element. If there is something that happens, is information available, accessible? No. And people do not know who to turn to. How do you evacuate safely? And if you have to migrate somewhere else, if you got to go to a shelter, are your needs going to be met there? Usually not, unfortunately. And I think if you look at Hurricane Maria, what happened in uh, Puerto Rico is that one third of the deaths linked to the hurricane were actually linked to disabled people not having access to the medical care that you would they would usually have access to. And they were also, you know, with other hurricanes, there were issues around air conditioning and, you know, electricity, you know, not being available so that people couldn't have access to their medication. So the first thing is we're more likely to die. And if we don't, we are extremely likely to be put in an environment that isn't tailored to our needs, where we're going to be told, where the, well, this is emergency, you just have to deal with it, which goes completely against the human rights approach to, you know, disability. The second aspect of how we are impacted by climate change is in the fact that 20% of the world's poorest people are disabled and a lot of disabled people will become poor, they will lose livelihoods, they will lose, you know, access to the thing that they have. So, you know, they have struggled to get in their lives. And I'm thinking here about developing countries because 80% of disabled people live in developing countries where the effects of climate change are uh, hardly felt in those countries. I was looking the other day at statistics for Uganda. A lot of people rely on agriculture. If there is a drought and there is no money, how are you going to pay for your wheelchair or your wheelchair to be repaired or how are you going to have access to education if your family becomes poor and decides not to send you to school? So it's all those small things. And then the disruption in the built environment. Imagine if there is a flood, a heat wave, whatever, you are evacuated, but then you go back to your home and most of the things you relied on are gone. Maybe your wheelchair is gone as well and you're just going to be told, well, just use this one. And we know that wheelchairs are extension of our skins. You can't just replace, you know, mobility aid with another one. How are you going to build... I, was, I don't want to use build back better, but build back some kind of stability in your life. And also how are governments around you going to rebuild everything? If schools have been, you know, um, flooded, are they going to rebuild it in a way that is accessible? If public transport has been disrupted, is it is the priority going to be we want disabled people on board? Or is it going to be, well, we're just going to do the minimum. That's the only budget we've got for X and Y. So there is a really uterus that we're going to be in a constant emergency mode, everything changing really quickly and being told, well, actually, this is a luxury here. We've got bigger things to do. I think, you know, this is a very interesting point because in countries where they're really implementing the CRPD, like here, the law requires that when new buses would be purchased, for example, that they would have to be accessible. There are all kinds of standards. Uh, I think one of the issues around destruction of the environment is the amount of money that it takes to rebuild it. I think when looking at the issue of destruction and reconstruction, it's a very important point. And uh, looking at what needs to be done 
if there is destruction in order to ensure that the new environment being created is as accessible as possible. That's not to say that we believe that destruction is good, but in the event that it happens. I know in the United States after Katrina, when President Obama came into office, there was a big push on prevention and intervention. And our FEMA and agency created division in FEMA focusing on disability and being able to send people out to the area where disasters had occurred who were knowledgeable about disability. And there were reports really showing where the system did not effectively work for disabled people. And there have been numbers of organizations created that are working in this area. Do you see the same in Great Britain and other countries that you're working in? What other countries do you think are really good to look at for both the issue of prevention and intervention? Well, I think, as you said, in the U.S., FEMA has been really leading the way after Hurricane Katrina. And I think, you know, there's been quite a few plans now, uh, especially with the new administration, especially to put funding behind some of the policy proposals that were on the table. The quick answer to that would be, I don't think we've got as much conversations about disaster management and preparedness as there is in the U.S. And I think it's because of the impact of Hurricane Katrina and a lot of other hurricanes. I think in Europe, we've got a lot of floods and we've got a lot of heat waves, but I haven't seen the same kind of political appetite, I would say, and also organization on the ground. Like I know in the US, you've got this uh, partnership for inclusive disaster strategies, which is led by disabled people and for disabled people, and they are doing amazing work. And I don't think we really have that equivalent in Great Britain or in the whole of Europe, and I don't think we have that coordinated approach. Then if I look at DPOs, I would say like in a lot of developing countries, I've been having conversations with some DPOs in Kenya who are more and more interested in the issue, but I would say it's still early days. I think it's basically quite niche right now, and there are quite a few individuals who are pushing those topics because they see it's there and it's affecting their daily lives. But in terms of how do we engage, I don't know, with the Kenyan government on, you know, their climate plans, that is a totally different issue. So I've seen DPOs having this big appetite for, you know, engaging into all this conversation. But I think it's going to require a lot of effort and a lot of people to get behind because climate is such a big conversation. I think especially since governments have prioritized mitigation. So mitigation is really how, what do we do right now to limit the effect of climate change? So it's looking at what can we do in terms of transport policy, energy policy, agriculture policy. And then you've got adaptation, which is this is a reality and we're going to need to adapt to more frequent and more severe extreme climate events happening. But adaptation has really been the Cinderella of the climate finance (laughs) space. So now I think we just need to find the right balance between being part of the mitigation conversation and because we are already pushing the conversations about, you know, accessibility, let's say in the transport space. Now I think every disability activist who talks about transport need to say, okay, and what are we doing in terms of making things greener and accessible? So it's probably, and that's a separate conversation about what can disabled activists do in concretely now today to be part of the conversation. One of them is probably already starting conversation in the spaces we are already in because climate is actually a conversation that is cross-cutting and is happening in every space. 
the COP26 Climate Summit. Did you attend? I actually attended virtually, which was a really interesting experience. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your experience and, and maybe give the audience a little bit of information about what it is. Yes, so COP is the big international uh, meeting. It's a conference party meeting where all the member states come together and review what they've done on climate. And that's usually the big moment where countries are going to announce a new policy on X and Y. If it was me, there would be a bit more accountability attached to COP in terms of actually can we review what worked and what didn't work rather than announcing uh, new things without thinking actually what have we done so far and has it been effective? But that's my own opinion. Um, COP26, this year it was, I think it was one of the first year where it was really easy to join virtually. And I think, again, the pandemic made it much easier for people to realize that attending virtually was a need. And also because of the whole vaccine inequity problem, a lot of people from developing countries were unable to come to Glasgow. So there were a lot of interesting conversations this year around loss and damage and around, you know, deforestation and a lot of new commitments. My experience of COP was that there are some encouraging signs that disability is there and there were some disabled people there, but there are also something that just well, depressed me completely. I attended one of the few disability and climate related events and someone asked if there were any disabled people in the audience and only two people raised their hand. And that just made me think, we're not there at all, even for when we're talking about an event about disability and climate. And obviously, there were issues around, you know, accessing the, the conference room itself with the Israeli energy uh, minister who wasn't able to enter. And I think what strikes me here is, first of all, I think a lot of people, a lot of disabled people weren't surprised by that, even though... Alok Shema was the president of COP26 that it would be totally accessible. But I think if someone with so much power and network cannot enter a conference room, what about disabled people who have zero networks and zero power? How are they going to get there? So I think this COP was actually, as I said, there were more disabled people in the room and in panels. But I find that we are pretty much where the gender equality movement was 10 years ago for the Paris Agreement, where they were at the representation stage. So there were clearly no commitments and no funding backing anything. So if you look at the COP26 declaration, which is non-binding anyway, you have something very short about disability, which sounds a lot like the preamble in the Paris Agreement, which just says need to engage with disabled people. And if you look at the gender equality movement, uh, what they did for the Paris Agreement was to get some really, really strong wording in there in terms of having governments implementing programs, especially looking at the intersection between gender equality and climate change. And that is now really reflected in a lot of plans that have been issued, same for indigenous people. For disability, it's still you know, a nice mention, we should be grateful to be there. But concretely, there is nothing that shows that government are going to take that home and do something about it. So COP and all these big, you know, UN conferences, I think are important in a way, but the real work starts after that. And for disability activists to go knocking on policymakers or and say, okay, what is happening now? What are you doing about it? How are you doing about it? And what is the timeline for that? What is the budget? And who is going to be involved? And how long is it going to take you? So yeah, that's my two cents on COP26. Also at COP26, um, there was the voiceless panel that you attended. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
that was a very interesting experience and by interesting, I mean depressing. So attending this conference, Thinking Voiceless, it was presented as an event that was going to be about the marginalized voices, which we are in the climate conversation. And all of a sudden, the conversation moved to the need to have, you know, vegan food at COP and banning plastic everywhere. And I just thought, first of all, there was no mention or reference to disabled people at all. Lots of references to fishes and animals nothing about disabled people, which made me think, okay, we're not even there. And the eco-ableism linked to that, you know, everyone in the audience, yeah, let's ban plastic. And, you know, and I just thought there is no space for nuances. And that's completely reflective of the space. A lot of climate activists are angry and frustrated for perfectly good reasons, but then it goes into zero, zero cars, zero plastic straws, zero everything. And then we just don't exist in that space. And that's exactly what happened. And you know what? Before that voiceless event, I attended another event uh, on climate, was looking at local councils in England and what they were doing about climate. And I asked a question about disability and I said, what is being done at a local level to include disabled people into climate justice um, action? And why are you going to, why are you doing policy-wise? And the answer was, well, it's difficult. You can't please everyone. And that's very telling. I would say that's an understatement. Wow. So um, let's talk a little bit about how disabled people can get more involved. And do you have some examples of where this is happening more? I know you mentioned the United States, but broadly speaking, how are people being informed and how are they engaging? How are they informed is... Well, there are different sources. Obviously, one is the internet, but a lot of sources on climate and you know climate emergency aren't actually accessible, some of the websites. So that's a reality that we have to deal with and that a lot of disabled people have flagged. So that's one thing. Where do they find their information? I think really varies. Whether they're already part of that conversation or not, I guess that's a very, very different perspective. So if you're already part of the conversation and you've got a rough knowledge of the issues and how to engage with local policymakers. And I think the engagement is happening through different routes. Uh, It's either that you're part of a a local community group of disabled people working together and asking questions about what is being done in terms of accessible transport. And by the way, is it greener? And how are you addressing those things together? So it's those kind of community that are coming together, I think, and are just popping up everywhere. I've seen that in Wales. I've seen that, you know, in all the developed nations here and also at a very hyper-local level. I think people are coming together, but those are very small groups and they don't often have a lot of funding. So I think there's probably something about linking all those people together. If you're roughly already in the space, you're going to engage with those groups and then link up with national organizations. You're going to, you know, become part of a bigger network. If you don't know anything about climate and you're interested in the issue I guess again your main pathway would be to look up what's happening online and being part of online forums or you know looking up information if it's not accessible it's obviously an issue so I think people have got different levels of information and knowledge on climate and that's also part of the reason why I'm working a lot on having my own training platform Part of it is training climate activists on disability, but the other part is how can we, how can disabled people have some kind of package 
of knowledge on climate and policy and then be able to go to their own communities and do the work and engage so that we have as many people as possible who are engaged and talking to policymakers. Because I think for a lot of disabled people that I've spoken to, it's quite difficult to feel like you can be part of the conversation because it feels so technical and it's so vast and, you know, you don't know where to start. And you're also so busy with your own survival and doing your own self-advocacy on, what you know, on transport or education and employment. So how do you add that to the list of things that you need to advocate on? So I guess how we engage and how do we, how do we have more disabled people being part of this movement from what I've experienced and what I've seen I would say there are several ways the first one is if you're already part of a group of disabled people working together or part of a forum or anything do bring up climate ask people if they've done anything or saw anything and find resources together the second one would be try and engage with local climate groups. I know it can be difficult. I know some people have tried to engage with uh, Fridays for Future or Extension Rebellion or being part of strikes and all of that. It's not fully accessible. It's also something I'm trying to explore with those groups, just trying to make that more accessible and them actually asking us also to be part of the movement so that there's this middle point where we are also supported and engaging with those groups. The third point, I guess, is you can start your own group of people. If you know a few people online who are interested about climate, just build a small group and then link up with all the other organizations that are working on it. Because I think right now there are so many organizations doing interesting things on climate and disability, but it's not very well organized. I think we're not really strong networks of knowing who is doing what, where. And I think that's going to change in the next two to three years. I think that's really important. And the most important message for me is that every disability activist should be a climate activist. Climate is going to change everything for us. It is the biggest threat to humanity. And even though we're often not treated as being part of humanity, we are. And you have a place, whoever you are, in the climate justice movement. And I know it can be hard to find it right now because the pathways aren't that clear. But I think there are resources, there is energy, and there is appetite from a lot of organizations to do more and have more people on board. So don't despair if you've wanted to be part of this conversation and you felt that you couldn't, there is definitely space for you and we need you. (laughs) I really want to thank you for all the hard work that you're doing in this area and uh, knowing that you're really one of the leading activists on environmental changes, including ensuring that the voices of disabled people are prominently involved. Thank you so much, Pauline. Thank you for everything, Judy. And, you know, likewise, always admired what you do when you continue doing. And thank you for amplifying all our voices and continuing to create such a big, diverse and amazing movement. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in to The Human Perspective. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also follow Judy on Twitter at Judith Human and on Instagram and Facebook at The Human Perspective. If you want to find out more information about this episode's guests or resources relating to the discussion, check out the description of this episode or visit judithhuman.com. You can also find a shortened video version of this interview on Judy's YouTube channel, dropping a week after this podcast is published. Otherwise, be sure to check back every other Wednesday for a new podcast episode. 
The intro music for The Human Perspective is Dragon, which is produced and performed by Lachi, Yuntero, and Warren. The outro music is I Wait by Galen Lee.